this week's guest is Leishla Maldonado from Providence, Rhode Island. We have a great conversation with Leishla where we talk about the importance of mental and personal health, both inside and outside of the industry, how to prepare for re-entering the workplace as restaurants and bars plan to reopen, and feeling comfortable with creating necessary boundaries in the workplace. Enjoy this week's show. Okay, welcome to another episode of the Industry Podcast. I'm your host, Kip Saunders. With me, as always, producer extraordinaire, Dan Soretta. What's happening? Uh, not too much, man. Uh, all is well on my front. Just mm-hmm. working like a chump, as always. Yep, good stuff. And yourself, how are things going with you? Ah, same. Living that COVID life. <laughs> uh, okay, we have a great guest, as always. Leisla Maldonado is with us today, coming from Providence, Rhode Island. We'll bring her in in a second. If you like what we're doing on the show, the best way to support us is to subscribe, rate, and if you can leave a review, even better. It only takes a minute and it helps us a lot. If you want to be on the show, just DM us at the Industry Podcast and we'll get you booked in. And as always, of course, a big thanks to at Zach Hanna Design, our boy Zach Hanna, who does all the artwork for us. Check him out if you need any graphic work. Correct. Uh, and the links are always in the show notes, so make sure you check those out. Okay. Well, we got a lot to talk about with our guests this week, so we're going to bring her in right now. Leishla Maldonado, how are you? Well, thank you so much for having me, guys. No, yeah, thanks, thanks for doing for, it. Yeah, thank you very much. So uh, giving up on... Uh, yeah. It's a gloomy day outside, so not so bad otherwise, but yeah. spring's so, in the air. Yeah, we're getting there. We're yeah. getting there. And hopefully with vaccinations, we're getting towards the other end of this nonsense as well. What's the situation like there in Providence regarding the industry? Are you guys, what stage are you at in reopening? So right now we are operating at 75% capacity. Oh, that's a dream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, we're a super little state. So a lot of the establishments here are pretty small. Mm-hmm. So 75% capacity is great but it's like we need that necessary 100 percent to operate yeah. what about for hours are you like reg on regular hours i believe it's till 11 p.m but mm. i could be wrong i haven't i haven't been back to work um in a little while just because of all of the restrictions so mm-hmm. um, but i think it's 11 p.m right now and where were you working right before this all went down so i work at the eddie bar which is in downtown providence Super small, cute craft cocktail bar um, that's been there for the last, I think, seven or eight years. I could be wrong there. But I've been there for about four and a half years now. It's a deal. I think we talked to somebody else who worked at that bar at one point. Brian Seltzer, maybe? Yeah. Uh, it was Parker Luthman. Parker Luthman. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So they said, yeah. oh, do, do you know him? Yeah, we're, we're like super tight. We're like best friends. <laughs> oh, cool. Oh, great. Uh, what, what do you know? Small world. Okay, so yeah, we know a little bit about the Eddie from from uh, Parker. So, uh, And you're sort of heading up craft cocktailing there? Yep. So I've been working there for some time now. I kind of bounce in and out. I The place, the people that own the spot there are super great. They let me kind of venture and do my own thing. But I've never gotten kicked out of the group chat. So <laughs> <laughs> so whenever I wanted to go back, they were just like, come on, come on through. Like, we'd love to have you. So yeah, I've been there, but I've also left to manage my own bar for some time. And then also to just do a couple creative, like consulting projects throughout that, that time frame. Right. So, yeah. And so what are your, some of the steps you think that people are necessary for people when they're trying to get back into working behind the bar or on the floor or in the kitchen again because it is it's it's weird it's weird going back oh totally I mean so I've done a lot of mental preparation because I know we actually just got the call last week 
that we will be opening up probably end of April into May. So I've spent the last few months just making, keeping myself focused on trying to like clear my head, work my body out because I'm such a couch potato. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, it's um, hard. That's, that, that struggle is real. Like when your first couple of days back, your body is sore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I've been uh, doing a lot of stretching. I didn't know how um, non-flexible I was until I started roller skating recently. <laughs> <laughs> so that and I think it's just really important to honestly find yourself a therapist. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, this going back into this, uh, when we went back, um, I believe it was in September, we were all rehired and we were working for a couple months the mental toll that it took on all of us because of either the situation not feeling safe, not because of the establishment, but because of everybody else coming mm -hmm. in, it really, it, it had the ability to almost damage the relationship that we had with each other. Really? Uh, we're such a small establishment. We have, have, have about six people that work there, including ownership, you know? So allowing that to kind of, mold its way into the establishment we had to shut down we were like we need to refocus we need to like recreate these bonds we need to talk openly with each other and make sure that we're taking care of ourselves so the manager was great and she she shut it down when she needed to oh wow that's good yeah because that's those are hard decisions to make as well like i even in my own experience with this um pandemic it was really difficult because as a, a as a small business owner there's so many factors to consider like you want to make sure everybody's safe and mentally healthy, et cetera, and everybody feels comfortable working there. But you also have to look after your bottom line or there's no job for them to come back to. So those, I, I, so I found those choices really difficult to make, but maybe maybe I should be also seeing a therapist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I, so I've actually cycled through therapists because I found, you know, I've realized that this is the time that we can really advocate for ourselves because we we have so much like Google is our best friend, right? Mm. So we know what questions to ask because we can quickly ask Google, like, how should I seek a therapist? And you get to really tune into what you're looking for. So I had because of so much time off, I was able to figure out exactly what I was looking for and somebody that knew the industry well enough that when I'm sitting here griping about the stupid shit that I they would just like laugh it off and think that it was that I'm being ridiculous. Yeah, all right. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you feel like that's helped you and made you pretty well prepared to go back? Totally. I think that's one of the factors. I think finding joy in something is definitely necessary outside of bar life. You know, I've been working in this industry for over 12 years now. So I didn't know anything outside of this until COVID happened. Mm -hmm. uh, so I had to find pieces or things that allowed me to truly find joy. And I know that once I go back, I can tune back into those. So that way my mind's not just always, what am I making next or what am I doing next? Right, having those fucking terrible work dreams where you're in the weeds and you can't get out of it and oh <laughs> everything you touch spills or breaks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have those stress dreams where, because uh, we're so high volume and we're such a small space where I'm trying to put the drink in front of the guests, but it's not reaching them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm also um, great, so that's real life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, 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 do, I do think that's really a, an important, uh, and a lot of people probably aren't considering it, because I know even I've for some of my staff as well, they've gotten back and they just feel like mentally and emotionally not ready for it. And, 
and you can see it like in a situation where they're used to pumping out hundreds of cocktails a night it's like all of a sudden having to do three at once is overwhelming them and uh, and it's just got to be the layoff and the insecurity of coming back plus make like wanting to be safe and also now you're wearing um, masks and goggles that steam up on you like it's a whole new world oh yeah the mental toll that it took that going back into this kind of environment that is being placed on industry workers is crazy. I mean, we're as owners, you have to put all of these things in place to make sure that they feel safe coming back. Mm -hmm. But then it's so hard because we put a lot of pressure on owners to not only make sure that it's safe, but also make sure that we're mentally okay. And these weren't conversations that we're having before. No, we're finally, they're finally taking the step back and realizing we're, we need to have these conversations in order for people to come back. And maybe we should have been having them all along because uh, it's, it is a high stress environment and workplace and people do. There's a lot of mental issues uh, in, in the service industry. And maybe we're not talking enough about that. Totally. Yeah, I've, I've I myself have been having this conversation over and over again for like the la- I think the last three years. I was just looking back at some things that I used to post on Instagram a couple of days ago and I, we were having much needed conversations here in Providence that allowed a lot of business owners to grow and and find those tools that we were talking about, find and utilize those tools that we were talking about then into the now. So it's mm. been great. And so what else besides, like, I, I really, I fully agree that having something to distract you outside of work that gives you joy is, like, massively important. But, like, what are some of the other tools that we can be using to make sure that our staff feels safe and mentally stable while they're at work? Open conversations. As humans, we allow our egos to kind of like put this wall up. And I think that we need to really open that door to being vulnerable and no longer being like, well, I'm the manager or I'm the owner. So like I need to put on this facade of like professionalism because what the fuck is professionalism really? Right. Uh, but I think that we need to have this open door policy. I believe in that, allowing you know everyone to come in and sit down, whether together or in pairs or one on one, which is what I used to practice when I was managing a bar. I would sit down with one of the employees either once a week or once a month, or and have biweekly staff meetings to make sure everybody was in check. Because at that point, if especially if we're high volume or whatever you are. If you're not okay and you can't say it to someone, I mean, the people at, that you're working with are generally like your best friends because right. you're them the most. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, it's amazing how your best friends change when you change jobs. Oh yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. It's like what is that the swing door thing that happens yeah. in the industry? <laughs> but yeah, we're we're open and vulnerable with each other. So I think that just making sure that there's an open door policy when it comes to talking about these things. And oftentimes when you start doing that, people don't feel comfortable with sharing with this person that they generally saw in one way. So one, allowing that time to happen and you opening up the conversation, like you saying what your fears have been or what your stresses have been, and then allowing them to give you advice mm-hmm. and then they'll start coming to you for the same thing. So, Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The uh, the other thing I, I noticed from your bio that I thought was really cool is that during this pandemic, you started a, a GoFundMe project to help people in the service industry. Yeah. Tell yeah. me about that. Yeah. So I was let go of one of my, so the Eddie, I was kind of already like in and out at that time. 
And I was let go of my job at March 16th of last year. So the minute that it happened, I was shocked that it was even going to happen because I figured we were going to like power through takeout stuff or just do something in that scenario. I myself financially was okay because I'm incredibly like financially savvy. But a lot of my friends were super stressed out about the idea of not having any type of funds coming in, which, Mm -hmm. you know, a very real thing at that time. So I'm a really impulsive person. So when I want to do something, I'm like, we're doing it right now. (laughs) So I sat down with my partner who's has a little bit of work in like some like design work. He works in transportation planning. So I asked him for advice on how to, you know, start a fundraiser. Initial goal was just $10,000, which is already lofty, but I figured that was a good number to start. And I figured we'd give like $100 to every person that put their name in. It ended up going, I think, I believe to either 27,000 or 29,000 around there. Wow, congratulations. Yeah, Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, Everybody is so supportive in Providence, uh, well, Rhode Island as a whole. So once Mm -hmm. you do something, everyone's on board. Yeah. So local media was covering it. Um, The councilwoman here was asking me, how can she help? I met with various like fundraising nonprofits out here to see how we can put it to a larger platform. But at the end of the day, I just decided that I didn't want somebody else to take it over. I just wanted to like do it with the community that I knew Mm -hmm. and um, just have them apply and not make it something that you that you have to jump through hoops for, because there were so many other fundraising fundraisers that were taking months to respond. And the application was like six pages long. And you had to send in all of these things where it's like we don't we work in the industry. We don't have our pay stubs. No, (laughs) I don't have my security card. So, like, I don't know anything about these things. Right. No, that's been in a bit of an issue here. They, our government's been pretty supportive in a couple different ways, but it took them a long time to roll everything out. And in, uh, in the interim, a lot of places actually closed down. And maybe if they had known that this support was coming, they would have hung on for a little while longer. And yep. uh, But then also once to apply for it is like, whew, it's like, you know, it's like it's like you said, where people work in the service industry, it's not the, the paperwork we're used to filing. You know? yeah. Like, yeah. So it was a big uh, pain in the ass. Yeah, I mean, it was it was super simple. We just put a Google Doc out. It asked you very, very like mundane questions, like you know, what's your name, where do you work, or what type of what style of hospitality do you work in. We had people applying from um, like Chipotle to you know hospital uh, hotel workers. So it was really all across the board, which was really cool. That's awesome. I, I, yeah. yeah, that's a great initiative. So congratulations on especially on. Raising that kind of money, that's amazing. Yeah. So talking about like diff- uh, many different places, this is, a, this is a brilliant segue I'm moving with Ooh. right now. So pay attention. <laughs> what, <did you laughs> uh, what was that? <laughs> is, uh, I'm going to segue right into talking to some of the many places that you've worked at, Lisa. <laughs> so uh, you started off in Boston, uh, correct? One of my, my favorite cities in the U.S. And I'm raised. Yeah. Uh, Amazing. And so you started off uh, as a hostess, as many people do, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So I got my first foot in the door at Hard Rock Cafe as as a hostess. But I really like to take a step back and talk about, I actually started at a Subway. Oh, right. Yeah, for sure. That's why you were a sandwich artist. I was a sandwich (laughs) artist. (laughs) (laughs) So I started off at Subway right when I was pregnant with my my daughter. So I was 17 and I 
I was living on my own at the time. So I had to figure out how to make cash. It was my first job and I loved it. I think it was one of my favorite jobs I've ever had. There is such a, there is a system to building sandwiches, which I don't eat. Actually, I hate sandwiches. Don't (laughs) freeze me. (laughs) But it down to like the amount of tomatoes you have to put in it. (laughs) (laughs) I love the idea of being like this person's lunch break and like having this little small talk and making people feel really great about ordering a sub. So Subway was my first job. Uh, just to jump in there, like the sort of the process of the whole thing and like using the exact right ingredients, that sounds crazy. But down the line, that's really going to transfer into helping you with your craft cocktail. Exactly. I think that it was a lot of, you know, organizational skills that I'd mm-hmm. never had before. So Subway was Subway was the best for starting out with that, you know. Nice growing up really so but yeah that that was what I did and then I moved over to Hard Rock Cafe right and so uh hostessing is a hard and shitty job Uh, (laughs) but a lot of people that we've talked to have started that way and sort of broken into like the more bar side of the industry in in the hostess position how do you feel like that job helped you develop in your industry career so I come from a background that is not very we didn't have a lot around us. It was just like small mom and pop, like taco shops and pupusa places. Um, I lived in a small immigrant ran community. So going, applying to a hard rock cafe was like, I made it. I'm at the top of the list. Like I I'm here. Right. Uh, and when I walked in and they had hired me, I went, I remember walking into my orientation and they're putting down all of these plates of food. And something that you don't know about Hard Rock Cafe is that they make sure that you try every single item on their menu before you pass your orientation. Oh, wow. <laughs> is, is this all in one shot, too? Or do you get like they the, do it in two sittings. Two sittings? <laughs> yeah, they, they have a big fucking menu. And they don't make like small portions. They make the entire thing. So you mm. have like whatever, like a hamburger, four different hamburgers and nachos. Oh, oh, I guess you get used to see what the portion size would look like when you, if you do that at carry them oh, too, right? right? That makes sense, yeah. yeah. Oh, but yeah. still, that's a, yeah, that's that's a, lot, a lot, lot of food. Of food. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I guess what I'm to say to, with that, I was really excited about it because it was the first time that I was shown that someone cared, like that, that this organization cared about their employees. Mm-hmm. And it was a it was a great stepping stone into this industry because it made me believe that hosting wasn't just saying hello at the door. It was mm. going to make their entire experience. Right. Hosting there isn't just opening and seating. It's like you have to actually control the music and you have to, you know, figure out all of these larger parties because they do crazy amounts of parties every single day, you know, talking about the music and then also entertaining in between meals. So we have to go around to tables and talk to them. And there are so many videos of me online on my Facebook of me dancing on chairs with, (laughs) 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 because when I say entertaining, it wasn't just saying hello. It was like, we had to get everybody up and dancing. There are actually a lot of those of Dan as well. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, that hosting really molded me as the person that I am today and especially at Hard Rock Cafe, because I was, it made me feel confident and like charismatic and, and made me look at it as a really fun job. So I also think it's interesting that you mentioned that 
working at the Hard Rock was where you got the notion that the like the ownership and the management cared about you because that is not the typical experience of people who are working in large chain style restaurants and bars. It usually goes the other way where they feel like they're just like another number punching the clock. So where do you go from there? Hopefully to a better spot. So there was a bar across the street that I used to get oh. really drunk at. Yeah. Perfect. Stick it right in their faces. Yeah. No, I, I sat at the bar and they offered me a job and that's where I actually started bartending. Oh, nice. And what was that place? It's not there anymore uh, because of COVID, but Zoom is Tex-Mex. It's in Faneuil Hall. Oh, so, nice. Yeah. Uh, that's a great area too. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Hard Rock was in Faneuil Hall, so right. it was. I was in that area for a long time. Right. Awesome. You get uh, to be 21 to drink? Yep. Ooh, all right. Good for you. <laughs> oh, I had to spot that one. Yeah. <laughs> one and only smart thing I might say all week. That was, that was a really awkward conversation for me when I got home. <laughs> <laughs> I've been drinking here for a while. For yeah. a long time. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times that's happened to me at places that I've worked at or owned, though, where people are like, yeah, I know I've been drinking here for a while, but I finally turned 19. Can I have a job? Because it's 19 here. So. Oh, my God. Uh, um, okay, so at what point do you end up moving to Providence? So I moved to Providence about five years ago. Yeah, it's either five years ago or six years ago as of last week. I moved there after buying a house here. Okay. It was very, very quick. We kind of just came out here for Mother's Day one day and we were thinking about, you know, we, we wanted to buy a home at some point and we didn't realize that gentrification was happening in our area <laughs> until we had to look for a house. Right. <laughs> uh, so we ended up just buying a house out here uh, and, and that's been here ever since. Really. Oh, cool. When did you get into the whole cocktail scene? Like, obviously, probably not. I know you were you got your first bartending job at the Tex Mex spot, but my, I'm g- going to gather that there wasn't a whole lot of craft cocktailing going on there. No, lots <laughs> and, of sour mix. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, so after Zuma's, which was the Tex Mex spot, I went to the Gallows in south at the south end of Boston. Oh. They had a focus on craft cocktails and also they were like a gastro pub too so it was really cool but i that was the first time that i was actually able to get behind the bar learn out learn about margaritas in the proper fashion and they were actually being held uh the bar was being uh managed by like five badass women so every single day i would go into my shift and i'd just be like what is this bottle and tell me what like tell me what it tastes like and let's talk about it and that was my that was my first cocktail bar right I worked there for like three years. Nice. At what point are you getting to the point where you're making your own cocktail list? So I, as far as the cocktail list, I always had input on it. Okay. But I didn't have like free reign on the cocktail list because a lot of the places, and even now, a lot of the places that I've worked at are more of like community driven, Mm -hmm. which is definitely how I prefer it because making a full cocktail list is like, so so time consuming. Yeah. (laughs) So the Gallows was my first place of like creating cocktails, which I actually, I remember making this one drink that had gin, green chartreuse, lime juice, and soda. And I was so pumped about it because it was my first drink that I'd ever made. Come to find out a couple of years later that it's actually already a classic cocktail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, that was really excited about it. So that was the first time that I was actually able to put something of my own on a menu. Right. Okay. 
And how would you describe the differences, say, in the bar scene between a huge city like Boston and a smaller one like Providence? Like, I know you, like, it sounds like, I know we're after talking to Parker and you now, the Eddie seems like it's a pretty cool spot, but, like, what's, like, what's the scene like in Providence in comparison to Boston? What do you like about it? Yeah, so Boston, I could never, I couldn't, I didn't feel at home there, even though I grew up there, but in the hospitality scene, I didn't feel like it was for me because it was so competitive and there was, it was just like very, very cutthroat. Everybody wanted to be like the very best mm-hmm. versus you kind of building up together and, and, and like recognizing other people's strengths and talking about those. So Boston has great bartenders, great bars, but it's just a little too saturated for me. So when I moved to Providence, this community is so small that it's really hard to just have this competitive view mm-hmm. the entire time. You kind of always are like, hey, I'm doing this thing. Let's talk about it. Let's collaborate and tell me what's wrong. So I love Providence's cocktail scene because we're all a family. There's not a lot of bartenders. Um, there's enough to know. You know, you know everyone once you walk through here a couple of times. Mm-hmm. So um, I love Providence's cocktail scene because it is an actual community and we're always, always rooting for each other. Yeah. And that's, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I like that sort of community based support as well, where you're all kind of working together. I think that works, that works best, especially in a smaller uh, community. When you're talking about the competitiveness in Boston, don't you find also that you sort of get to a point where it's like, there's only so much you can do when you're everybody's kind of trying to one up each other at all times like there's only so far we can stretch what we're doing here with like alcohol and ice and glassware yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, and I think that and don't get me wrong again before my Boston friends are like girl what are you saying (laughs) 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 but um it's just you know we're not the keeper of all things you know like we're not we we can't think that way we're we have to kind of just keep all this information and then assume that everybody else is just going to figure it out at their own pace. The There is only so far you can go, so why not share it? Mm-hmm. Because if you aren't sharing it, then you're just an asshole. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you know, there's so many systems that hold other people back. Why, why put yourself at that system and allow yourself to hold other people back just because it like strokes your ego? It's just not necessary. Yeah, I agree with you. And I found like people can be especially, um, I don't know, I guess it happens in all cities, types of cities, but like people can be so guarded about their list and what's in it and whatever. And I like, it's refreshing when you run around like the, the bartenders um, running my existing bar right now is uh he's very much like if anybody asks him what's in his drink he just tells them the whole recipe and like if and if so, even if it's someone from a different bar or whatever just like get it out there this is what i do and assuming that you're not that person's not going to go and copy it and put it in their bar but he also is confident enough to be like look it's not going to be as good as what i did i came up with this i know why i did it this way right mm-hmm. it, it, like it's okay to share ideas because everything comes from somewhere else anyway like we're all just expanding on existing shit yeah yeah and you know the the idea of hospitality is just being nice to each other yeah so it can't stop with the people that you're work that you're breaking bread with you know right so as far as like you know i've had this happen where there was actually a woman from new york that came to visit me at the bar that i was managing and she had asked to take one of the things from my menu and i was like 
I mean, that's a little weird. I, I feel like it was her first restaurant and she didn't understand like that. You can't just take things from other places. <laughs> yeah. like, if you want, this is it. But you don't know the story that I have behind this. You don't know right. why it meant so much to me. Like right. your story is that you went to a bar in Providence and you thought it was cool. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so. uh, yeah, you got, you have to be careful with that. I think like, as long, as long, like just tweak it something like we all, we all borrow from each other, but there's, there is a line between borrowing and straight up stealing. Like, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean um, that lady was deaf trying to steal from me, but it's all good. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so you're talking about like the, the nature of the hospitality industry and the emphasis on being hospitable. Like, how do you think that, that carries over to the work environment, as far as like creating boundaries or what have you? Yeah, so I think as far as creating boundaries in the hospitality and like in the work space. That has, it's so taboo because it hasn't really happened before. And not just in this industry and so many industries, but specifically in this industry, you know, you'll work, you'll work doubles and then have to open again the next day. And, and, or there will be people drinking behind the bar, even though you don't really like, that's, that's just not a thing. Like my boyfriend doesn't go to work at his transportation planning firm and has a shot before his shift. Right. <laughs> that yeah, would be really not, messy. Yeah. <laughs> think, think I did when I worked for the local government, though. <laughs> and I did for about 12 years. <laughs> That's different, though. That's yeah. different. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's funny how, like, you say that. It's like the whole sort of madman vibe of, like, liquid lunches and getting half in the bag before you go back to work or whatever that still really only exists in our industry oh yeah and <laughs> it's, it's so toxic on so many levels not just for yourself but the people watching you the people wanting to grow from you so I guess creating boundaries again is like to back to that question we need to be more comfortable with saying no that's not okay or this doesn't make me feel comfortable, or I just can't work this clopin that you asked me to because I need to rest because mm -hmm. my body hurts. Yeah. Uh, so, and it's not, it's easier said than done, right? Like we sit here and we're going to say like, I'm going to say no moving forward because you also don't want to seem like you're not a team player. Mm -hmm. uh, you want, don't want to seem disinvested like everybody else. But I think just trying to spend this time before you re-enter the work workforce, practicing either with your friend, with my daughter, like whatever, creating necessary boundaries and having those conversations where I do not want to drink tonight or I do not want to do this thing that you're asking me because I cannot take on this workload. So I think I think practicing now and if you, you know, you're already back to work and you can't do that like time where you have to practice, just practice every single day. Have have one of your staff members or, you know, one of your coworkers ask you a question just so you can practice saying no if somebody asks you what, you know, something that, that you cannot do for whatever reason. So Yeah, saying no is quite liberating, too. Actually, I think I might just try that with my wife from now on. <laughs> just see, I don't know if it's going to go over as well, but... <laughs> I didn't recommend that. <laughs> She's saying that was I'm going to tell her that you gave me the idea. Yeah. <laughs> So I agree with you that these boundaries need to be um, instated into our industry. But the, I guess my question is, how do we go about doing Because it? it's going to take some sort of transformational change because we are all very used to being asked to do like a clopin or what have you. And like if you're the one who says no, well, they'll just find somebody who will say yes. Yeah. Well, I think that with that mentality, that's where we 
have to also talk to, you know, managers and owners where it's like, we're not this like rotating system of replaceable people. I mean, mm-hmm. if you, if you did well, if you hired well, then you love your team and you're going to do whatever it is that you can do to make sure that this team stays, mm-hmm. you know, like with my, I remember when I was hiring at my last bar, I, I interviewed over 30 people and every single interview was an hour long and I, it was necessary for me to figure out who they were as humans, who they were as workers and how they would kind of mesh with the team. So that way, when they did have to like create these, we did have to have these conversations where they couldn't do X or they couldn't do, do Y, it was a comfortable space for them. So we have to do a better job at allowing the like this conversation, this uncomfortable conversation for both parties as managers and as employees. But the managers need to lead that because mm. they're so used to just grinding until it until we're in this spiral that we don't know who the fuck we are anymore, you know? Right. So I think before anything, managers need to kind of like remember that we're all human. We have feelings and we're not just like another cog in the machine. Right. This brings me to a, a topic I think we've maybe touched on before briefly on the show, but something that comes up a lot when you're having these discussions regarding the service industry, is this a situation where like a unionization might come into play as a as a solution? Oh, yeah. So I'm, I'm definitely pro-union. Uh, <laughs> I think that there are so many times as a woman of color in this industry that I've been let go or I have been physically assaulted like that I did not have the support to go to someone and tell them that this happened or I'm uncomfortable or I don't know what to do or so we need these we need these other parties to allow us to make us feel comfortable to like say this is not okay Mm -hmm. I need to talk about this and we need to address it right well, and it's funny, like I always get the like when whenever this comes up, you always get the the people taking the devil's advocate side of it and being like, well, you know, unions, careful what you wish for, like, blah, blah, blah. But it's also like getting to what you're talking about. Like, I don't see another way where we're going to like unless everybody unifies on a common goal, like we are not going to do doubles and then clopens and like and that means none of us are like unless everybody comes together, then like I said, they'll, they'll just find someone who will do it. Right. So. Oh, yeah. And, you know, by law, I believe by law, at least in Rhode Island, you cannot schedule someone for I think it's 10 hours from their last shift. But oftentimes you'll be walking in, opening that shift on a brunch morning after getting out at three and walking in at seven, you know. So there's not there's no one holding that like law accountable Mm -hmm. to allow people to feel better because I'm going to walk into that shift. And I did, I used to walk into the shift where the first thing I do is take a shot at seven in the morning. And then I was drunk before 12. So (laughs) (laughs) nobody's listening. (laughs) Is this place still hiring? And can I apply? (laughs) (laughs) I had it really well. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And then I think that that's, so the, the other side of unions, of course, is if you are the type of person who does want like maybe you just really want to make some money for a certain reason and you want to work like a double and then a clopin. If you bring a union into it, all of a sudden that's not going to be allowed, right? So I guess that's the, the counter argument to it. But uh, as far as the, the whole goal is to take care of our mental health and physical health as well, right? So sometimes like your, 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 your own personal health has to, over, has to be more important than your greed. 
<laughs> yeah. And I mean, honestly, I think that, so when we talk about that, somebody want, that wants to open or close and then open, I'm, it's, I'm assuming it's financially, like it's because they have something that they have to pay or they want extra money. We make a lot of money in this industry. You know, like some days you walk out with 300, some days you walk out with 200, we make it a great amount of money. That's why we're here, right. you know, for at the most part, I mean, on top of all the other things, but Money is why I'm still yep. here. You know? yeah, sure. <laughs> I think it's naive to say that that's not it, right? Like yeah. you know, we, we might like what we do, but at the end of the day, you're not yeah. doing it unless you're making that money. Yep. I think what's most important is that we start taking like financial literacy as a, you know, having these conversations about financial literacy. And uh, example to my last, when I was managing this bar, that was also a conversation that we would have because we were walking out with $300 a night. But then one of my employees was like, I'm so broke. And she, like, you know, I'm like, how? Like, you need like, $1,100 this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so we had necessary conversations on helping them create a budget, um, mirroring what my budget is and why. So that way they understood, oh, I don't need to spend all of this money at the bar after my shift. Um, I can save money. And yeah, I think that. If it wasn't a union, I think that employers can do a better job at like having these small things and having these small conversations. And it circle back to that open door policy thing about financial literacy. So we are better about spending our money and not feeling like we have to kill ourselves to make extra. That's interesting. That's a good idea. And it's like it's this kind of stuff happens in almost every other industry, but just not ours. So I think you're right. We need to start bringing some of these practices that are so accepted in like the office culture or um, or I mean, pretty much in any other major career where they have these kind of conversations and and sort of implement them in ours. So like, yeah, it's something as simple as like financial literacy. Nobody talks about that. We just talk about blowing our money at the bar after or like (laughs) or a late night, a late night with an eight ball. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, exactly. That's the. That was that was a lot of my goal. When I when I went into management, I was like, I know that no matter how long I'm going to be doing this, I need to make sure that the people walk away from some, with something and it doesn't it doesn't necessarily and I don't want it to be just like bar knowledge. Mm-hmm. I don't want it to be how to create a cocktail or how to make somebody smile. I also want it to like go on with them with their life. So financial literacy will literally change your employees' lives, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah. Certainly in a way that like making the perfect Manhattan won't. So, so yeah. 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 <laughs> no, and three down, they don't even know if it's perfect anymore. So. No, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Uh, so are these some of the things you try and uh, get across to people in your uh, consulting business as well? Uh, or is that more focused on building a cocktail list or whatever? Yeah, so it goes both ways. I, I definitely have had conversations where I recommend that this is what you should do to create a better, like a better team that really wants to be here. Um, I always recommend doing X, Y, and Z, whether it's financial literacy classes, having open door policies, and also knocking that word professionalism down. I'm like a big advocate. I'm no longer talking about professionalism. So when I am consulting on top of that, I'll have like conversations about how I've kept my team strong. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I won't, I won't necessarily be just hired for like culture for team culture. Um, but I definitely always bring that because it's just naturally, I always want some place to succeed if I'm going to be consulting on their project. Yeah. It seems kind of like an easy 
transitions to bring something like that in when you're talking about anything revolving the bar it's pretty easy to bring these kind of guiding principles into your conversation right totally yeah and so what else so when you get hired to consult what are you generally being brought in to do it's mostly cocktails Mm -hmm. so i since i've moved to providence i've actually only been consulting the last four years just because I like at first I just kind of wanted to do my own thing. But I always knew that at some point I would either be consulting or leading some type of educational program of sorts that I would make up at some point. Mm-hmm. So I'm typically hired for just to create a drink. And with that, I've made a name for myself um, here as being like the low proof kind of spirit free, like non-alcoholic queen. Mm-hmm. So I that helped broaden my consultant projects because I was able to not only help with the bar, but I was also able to help with the cafe. Right. Um, So majorly, you know, cocktails and such, but the last place that I worked at or, you know, consulted for was this tea shop um, on Thayer street, which is like a very commercial street out here. And they had a very strange cocktail that I put on there and it was like one of their biggest hits. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was like tomatoes and like horseradish and like something else, but it was, it was crazy. (laughs) Well, I I think it's interesting that you're doing the low proof or mocktail sort of thing, because that I, at least here it's becoming massive. Like there is a major push for these people for who don't drink for whatever reason, either they're pregnant or they're, they just have made the decision not to drink or they are driving that night or whatever the reason that they've chosen to not drink, they still want to come out to the bar and hang out with their friends, right? And and not feel like they just have to sip on soda water all night or whatever, <laughs> right? And this is a real thing too, not get the fucking sort of ire from the staff and ownership of the place where it's like, oh, he's taking up a seat all night and you're not drinking anything, right? Because you can actually mo- mark up a mocktail a significant amount if you're putting a lot of care and attention into it. Oh, yeah. And, <clears throat> you know, I've had like a very, so I have a different experience. I currently live with my my boyfriend and his twin brother, who has never had a sip of alcohol in his life. Mm. <laughs> word, what? <laughs> I know. I don't know why he's still here. But... <laughs> no, I love you, Jeff. Just kidding. But um, um, yeah. Funny. So he doesn't at all. So we'll have nights where we're all having a cocktail. And this was years ago, where I was like, "Why doesn't this guy just like I don't know get himself soda water or something to have a drink with us?" So it really. That was one of the first things that allowed me to like open my eyes to the fact that not, you know, he loves coming to my bar, but he won't come because he doesn't think that there's something for him. Mm-hmm. So it, that's, that's been all over the place. People have been like putting their, you know, cocktails on the menu and then saying that you can have an, it in a non-alcoholic variation. And I think that if you are good at your job, which we're, you know, a lot of us are, then you will make a cocktail, make sure that there's some type of non-alcoholic iteration carried to it. So that way they can have this flavor, but they don't have to have, you know, the the booze. Right. And uh, so what we have done at my bar is to sort of take that and flip it where we make mocktails specifically that are completely different than the cocktails on our menu. So Mm -hmm. the person who isn't drinking feels like that they actually have something special. And then we say, if you want to add booze to this, yeah, <laughs> you can you do that to. too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that, so, that, that's worked out really well for us. Yeah. So at the um, when I was managing my bar, I made sure that so that was when I was really diving into non-alcoholic um, iterations and also low proof things. So I 
worked with Seed Lip for a little while to kind of like have these small little classes at my bar. So that way, because Providence is super small. And mm-hmm. when it comes down to a lot of things, they're like, they're slow walking to like certain things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so non-alcoholic and like low proof things are, ve- they were very far behind here. So we were having these conversations and we would have like, you know, meetings with having people come in with like members only and signing up for all these meetings where we would talk about seed lip or we would talk about this non-alcoholic distillate and allow them to taste it in some form. So people would come that don't drink or that drink, you know, five, six Manhattans at the bar, but got to try these really beautiful cocktails. So they were like into, they were, they were like in the know of all of these really cool things that were happening. And they knew that there were options for them if they wanted to not drink. Right. So, yeah. yeah. And I, and again, I like, I just think that's the trend that's going to keep going. Like so many people have stopped drinking, but still want to go out and Good. Like, you, I mean, to make it crass as a bar owner, I can make money off those people too, right? Yep. So. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I think it's just about making it fun, you know? So yeah. you always see these these drinks with like all of these different ingredients and like these beautiful garnishes and this, like these mundane processes. And you just like want to have these things in your non-alcoholic cocktails or the low proof cocktails, you know, mm. you know, a lot of low proof cocktails out here was like a sherry and soda or like, you know, that's a little advanced. I'm, I'm actually, that's, that wasn't it. Like Campari and soda and yeah. so forth. But one of the things that appealed to the low proof movement here when I, when I was introducing that was that I made this thing called a vermouth service. So at the bar that I was working, there was a guy before me that made this beautiful cocktail list and I didn't want to make it to far from what he'd done so there was a thing called a vermouth service which i think if you've been to like dante in new york at all no okay so at dante great bar you should you should head there when you're back in the states okay Um, (laughs) (laughs) when we're allowed to do that again (laughs) but they had this thing called a vermouth service where you were essentially having vermouth with some type of like frozen fruit so it could be like blackberries or whatever and you just got this like really nice glass of ice cold vermouth so at the bar that I was working at, they had vermouth service. And I was like, well, what is it? And it was just literally a vermouth and some potato chips, which is cool. But mm-hmm. it was, you know, not what I was thinking about. Mm-hmm. So we made this. Uh, there was like these little trays that I found around the around the bar one day. And I was like, well, what if I put vermouth in this glass and then ice in this glass and then maybe some bitters because vermouth vermouth should be paired with bitters it's beautiful mm-hmm. or not if you don't want and then like an assortment of citrus so we became well known for having these like beautiful ornate things for vermouth services that had never been done before so if you didn't want to sit there and have a super like crazy cocktail that was high proof you were allowed to have this beautiful experience where you were like going around this little tray and personalizing your cocktail that's amazing. I love that yeah. idea. That's yeah. cool. I, I might I might borrow it. I'm putting that in air quotes. <laughs> That's exactly what the New York lady said. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lisa, I, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. You're a really cool person. And it's good to have people like you in the hospitality industry. We need more of you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, keep doing what you're doing and good luck with everything getting back to the eddy. And I hope that all goes well for you. Stretch. Oh, yeah, right now. Okay, thanks again. Have a great night, guys. You as well. Bye.